Welcome back, book fiends, to the Unlock Tomb podcast, presented by Wicked Good Books, a reread podcast centered around the Lock Tomb series by Tamsin Muir. I'm your host, Nick, joined here with my co-host, Emily Sexus, MD. Hello. We will be joined this season by two guests who are enjoying the material for the first time. The original emoji of the side eye, my friend Lisa. Hey. And from the 10th house, our king of cardio, Junior. Running away. Today's episode, we'll be covering uh, chapters 23, 24, and 25 of Gideon the Ninth. Before we begin, though, how are you guys doing? We're going to pretend like we didn't just record an episode prior. So how was you guys' uh, weekend? (laughs) Great. Doing pretty good. I had a pretty decent weekend. Amy and I had a date night, which we haven't had in forever, even excluding the fact that we have a little one or two little ones, but... um, pre-pandemic we used to go all the time at least twice a month we went out for drinks and then we saw a movie we saw the new nick cage movie i believe it's titled uh the unbearable weight of a measurable talent and it was hilarious i haven't laughed that hard in a hot minute i had to like take my inhaler in the car when we left because i was like i was like wheezing laughing and uh I literally thought you were going to say unbearable Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> it's, it's it's close. It's that, basically. It's so meta, <laughs> but it's so funny because like I, you can tell that he probably had a good time making it, but was probably also super unsettled because like he has nothing to do with the script. Like they, I'm shocked they actually were able to convince him to do it. <laughs> it is it is some funny film. Um, and the movie itself was super indie, and I, I just love stuff like that. Same thing with um, uh, Everything, Everywhere, All Once, I think is another big title that came out this past month. Um, it's a great indie film for people to go out and support. I wanted to see more films like these. So if you haven't had a chance to go see those, check them out. How about you, Lisa? How was your weekend? It was pretty good. Pretty good. Uneventful. That's good. I know work's been stressing you a little bit. Oh, yeah. You know, work's always a great time. It's been keeping me busy, but it doesn't keep me busy on the weekends. It's true. That is true. I mean, that is important. Yes. I kind of job. I know you have. I know you've been losing sleep at night, uh, thinking about the Fantastic Beast three trailer cut that you had to do. Oh, I don't want to talk about that one. <laughs> Miss J.K. Rowling herself turned it down. And said, "Nah, I don't want this oh, on the air." No. Oh, that's a fighting words in this podcast. We have to retweet her ass. <laughs> well, how about you, Emily? How was your weekend? Had a great weekend. It's been beautiful weather here in Houston, which those days are quickly running out since the summer. May is basically the start of summer. So, Like like us here, I'm sure it gets too hot to handle in that state. Well, this past weekend, because I think I had my my weekends messed up on the last episode because I saw Beetlejuice two weekends ago and then the weekend prior to, to two weekends ago. So three weekends ago, we went to... Auto show. So this past weekend, um, went down to the shore, and I think this past weekend was the weekend when all the shore restaurants and bars and clubs start opening up. So just hung out there on Saturday. That's about it. I think I think that's what what got me sick. But oh no, (laughs) I know it's like. But you know though, actually, I'm. You know what? It's okay though. Like I. I'm just glad that I'm able to get out the house and not be stuck in the house. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I felt the same way going to the movies. I was like, oh. And honestly, there was like maybe six people there, um, <laughs> in that in that hey. movie anyway, um, which I love because it's nice and quiet and you can stretch out. But 
it was just nice to get out of the house and get some fresh air. So feel you there. So jumping into, let me scroll down here. Emily, you're reading chapter three? Yes. 23? <clears throat> you ready? Chapter 23, Prospectus. After settling Dulcinea in a room confined to bed under the care of the salt and pepper priests, the remaining necromancers and cavaliers gather to review the most recent turn of events. Ianthe Tridentarius reveals that the ashes from the incinerator are composed of human cremains from two separate people. Palamides Sextus reads the Thanergetic time signatures of the ashes and predicts both persons have been dead for well over a month. They are able to deduce that whomever was incinerated died well before the start of the Lictor trials. The entire group speculates on the identity of the remains and on the location of the missing 7th House Cavalier, Pertesilaus. During their discussion, the 8th House Necromancer Silas Octokaiseron slips out unnoticed and returns with the keyring of Dulcinea. Everyone gives him significant grief for retrieving her keys while she is in incapacitated and without the protection of her cavalier. The possession of keys has turned out to be a significant factor limiting each house from unraveling the entirety of the electoral ascension process. Now knowing this, Captain Judith Deuterus challenges Palamides Sextus for his keys in order to gain them for herself. The 6th House Cavalier, Camilla Hecht, and the 2nd House Cavalier, Marta Dias, hop onto the main table to face one another in a duel. The fight is decidedly uneven as Camilla releases a furious set of blows against her opponent. The duel ends with Judith calling mercy after Cam dislocates Marta's arm. Both Camilla and Marta suffered injuries during their duel, enraging calamities. He voices his anger to Captain Deuterus, who has unintentionally set a dangerous precedent. Anyone with more than one key is now a target. Niberius' turn loudly challenges the sixth house to a duel for possession of their keys, further emphasizing Palamides' point. So I think this is the first episode, uh, or not episode, the first chapter, where we really get a lot of interaction with the second house. Um, I feel like they've been, they have been in chapters previously, but this is kind of the first time that we see them maybe reaching out and trying to interact with the other houses and um, actually elevate themselves in the electoral trials. So I didn't know if anyone else had any opinions on the second house, especially in this chapter, since they kind of come off a little aggressive, I guess. Aggressive is definitely the right word. And, you know, for memory's sake and as a light refresher, um, we won't go into too much about them because we're going to do an interlude about them eventually. But this is like the the military or militaristic house of the Emperor Undying. Um, uniformed, clean cut, very like stern, very, very much soldiers. Um, so just have that in your mind. This whole chapter honestly had me very suspicious of like everyone. Um, hmm. that's interesting. It's like the Spider-Man meme when everyone's like pointing at everybody. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. How do you feel about them, Junior? Um, I didn't really feel one way or the other about the second house. Um, except for the fact, um, you know, how they had that little tiff with, um, what was it, Protestalaus? Yeah, the, the, that's 
one of the cats that they have kind of beef with uh, in this chapter. Yeah, so, but yeah, so, um, <clears throat> I feel like they had some type of ulterior motive. Yeah, so I think, I think what it is is that the second house kind of just comes out really aggressively in this one. So the eighth house snuck out and got the keys from the seventh house. All the keys. Yeah. yeah. So the eighth house snuck out and did that. And then in response, the second house comes out and challenges Palamides for what keys he has, which is really kind of out of nowhere. And they just kind of decide that they should be able to hold on to the keys which was very presumptuous of them. So at this point, for me, at least when I was reading it, I was like, who the hell do you think you are that you can just like try to fight the sixth house to get their keys and act like you should take control in this situation? And we kick everything off with them taking the ashes out of the incinerator um, and together with the help of the third house uh, in column from the eighth, they're able to deduce that... uh, or they suspect uh, these ashes belong to a corpse three months dead. Okay, yeah. I I had to go back and, and look. I had, to, I had to pull up my cheat sheet of who everybody is. I get... I, I, I still, t- 23 chapters in, get confused <laughs> over who is in which house. And that's how I got in trouble now, because like I was saying the wrong houses, but I knew what I was talking about. Just had the names in the houses mixed yes. up, so... That's this, my fault. That's I should have, I should have took notes on that because it was a no, little confusing that's okay. for me. Yeah, I had <laughs> I had to go back the whole book. And, I had to go back and be like, wait, which two are the second house? Because yes, there was some stuff right. that went down in this chapter. <laughs> this chapter also, I had to reread it actually because there was so much going on with like people talking back and forth, and I and one of the things is that they don't always say um, like. Tamison doesn't always say who was speaking like you and like you have to really be following with the paragraph before of what interaction who's in the interaction because when she gets into her like dialogue it doesn't she doesn't have like you know Magnus or not Magnus but she doesn't say like Bab said or this like you know she doesn't always have who said it right after the line so when she doesn't do that it gets confusing to me and she did that a lot in this chapter um, and yeah, I had, it definitely followed along the lines of like a movie, like a like a, 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 like if you're watching a movie and you don't hear them saying, "Oh, well, this person said that." You're just seeing yeah, it because you have the visual cues. It reminded me uh-huh. of like the dinner party scene where there was just like yes. 15 different conversations happening, and I was trying to follow along. But I will say, you know, the second house coming in with this and then just like wanting to duel, and they're like dueling on the table. And they they picked <laughs> right. And who they picked? Um, did they pick Camilla? Is that who he picked to um, to duel? Yeah, they and challenged the sixth fight, house, yeah. which Camilla the Cavalier is the one who steps up into the duel. Yeah, and she, they're like pick on somebody your own size because she's younger. And that I was reading that fight go down. I was just like, oh my god! I was like, is somebody about to die? So. Just to backtrack here, too, to kind of lead into why this duel even happens in the first place. So the second house being the closest to the first house, and we know the first house is the emperor's house, um, being the militaristic arm and, and like the authority, we'll call them, a figure of all the houses, uh, they sort of take it upon themselves. Now we have Judith Deuterus, um Who's like the one that's like the main one speaking here? Um, and 
Lieutenant Dias, who I'm certain is a cavalier. Um, so you have Judith Deuteris is the necromancer calling out the other houses, but specifically targeting Palamides for key hoarding and essentially being like, the key hoarding can't continue. We're going to leave it to the second house, the ones who are ma- mostly in charge of order and discipline and uh, we'll call it policing almost, the, the military arm, um, the physical might of this this structure, societal structure, um, the structure of this society. They're the ones that basically say, give us the, all your keys. We're going to be the ones that look at look after them. Which, on one hand, is coming from a sense of, well, I guess that makes sense if these guys are like the, the military slash, um, uh, what's the word? Not... Um, not the UN. They're like uh, like the National Guard. Well, they're kind of like martial. Yeah, like they're trying take to... Take them ne- like as the National Guard yes. of necromancers. And they're being like, we're going to take all the keys and, and harbinge them and, and be the ones that look after them. And the other houses are like, actually, you know, we're not even sure how many of us are going to become lictors. This is sort of like a contest still, right? So no, we don't want to give up our keys, and it has like this point of contention between these two houses, between all the houses really, which then causes this duel to happen, and because uh, we get the sense that Light Harrow, Palamides is very uh, stubborn, but he's also very intelligent and very confident, and doesn't want to back down to the second house, despite the importance of what we know about that house. Keep in mind, all these people. They're not necessarily there as voices of these houses, nor are they really representatives of these houses. They are like the youngest heirs to these houses. So while they have some of their own individual authority, we'll say, they're, they're supposed to all be on equal grounds in Canaan House, all seeking the same goal. So really, the second house does not have this kind of authority that they're trying to pull on the other houses. And so Palamides being someone like Harrow, who's very outspoken, very confident in his abilities, is like, fuck, no, we're not doing that. Like, we'll, we'll, Sure, we'll fight you over it. And so Camilla, his cavalier, steps up to the plate. And we have this, like, this really great moment of Camilla just kicking ass. Uh, and and Dias does too. Yeah, but it's known in the community, too. The Cam Go Loud yes, is, like, the- one of the big quotes big quotes for the series you'll see so much art of just like three cells of just palamides like fixing his glasses he's like cam go loud and they get like this like really bad like anime drawing of camilla like you'll see that a lot in the community um people seem to love that scene um because it's something you wouldn't typically say to someone drawing swords usually that's like a you know a military line for open fire go loud but like, he tells this girl to go loud like it's his way of being like to hold back like do your thing because he knows she's capable and he's super confident in her abilities, which I love. Um, not to say that Dias is no pushover either. This is a necromancer specifically trained in physical combat. So it's quite the match. Yes. So I guess what in starting with that, because I was just so in this chapter, I just remember being so taken aback at them doing that. We kind of skip over the I skipped over the whole starting few paragraphs, which is where they figure out that. Not only is there one dead person burnt in the incinerator, but there's two dead persons. And not only that, but they've been dead for a month, maybe three months. And 
that's like a huge what the fuck moment, right? Like, yeah. what? Who's in the incinerator? Everyone we've met so far has been present for those three weeks. It's only Abigail and Magnus, to the best of our knowledge, are the first ones whom died, and their bodies are in the morgue, which were just there, which is separate from the incinerator. So that was like a red flag on my first read, and again on my second read. So we get to um, this huge moment of contention between these houses and both cavaliers are wounded, but ultimately Camilla is the victor here. Um, and the big moment here is that Palamity just sort of, I don't want to say he is outspoken here, but he takes this opportunity to, to, to his cavalier wins the duel and he speaks up for himself, for, uh, his house and basically demands that Deuterus hands over her keys. Um, and you get these amazing dialogue moments from him that I absolutely love. I've highlighted almost all of them, but essentially he's like, Give me, I want all your keys, including your facility key. Uh, and they're like, you have, you have one of those. We all have at least that one key. And he's like, basically like, I don't give a shit. Like, then maybe I'll throw out the fucking window, he snarled. Two good calves hurt, yours and mine. All because a second tried to beat up the weak kid first. And I love it because we know the sixth house is, at least from a distance, you've got this, like, bespeckled Dr. Sherlock kind of skinny-looking cavalier who doesn't look physically opposing. And then you have this leaf, flexible fighter that we know is a badass because of her fight with... Gideon in the hallway in the, in the yeah. stairwell, but we didn't get to see it really play out much, but they definitely stacked up against the other houses and do look like the weaker, like visually weaker house, but they're actually, as we've seen now, like one of the most capable. And I didn't know what you guys thought about that. It is sort of like your underdog kind of thing, but I did like that these underdogs bested the military branch uh, of this world. Yeah, I just found it very interesting, um, that whole scene in this chapter, um, you know, with them actually fighting and then them coming to terms like, well, you know what, maybe we should really just try to all get along and figure out what the hell's going on here because, you know, we, you know, we have these two missing, uh, or sorry, we, we, we have these two dead bodies in the incinerator. Uh, we need to, and this kind of leads into the following chapter, but like we, you know, we need to figure out what the hell's going on here versus, uh, you know, everybody just kind of going off and doing their own thing. So, and it seems like a huge waste of time, right? Because yes, absolutely. We know as the readers, like, God, like we've established at this point that you're probably all supposed to be. There's a good chance here that you're all supposed to be working together, and whether it be jealousy, rivalries, uh, um, dishonesty, or just straight up shadiness, you know, untrustworthiness between the houses. Um, they just can't, some of these houses just can't get along for one reason or the other. And this whole duel, as Palamides points out towards the end, it's just a complete waste of time. He's like, all you did was prove that waste of time. you guys want to take charge with brute force. And we're not all about it. This thing we're all doing here isn't about who's the strongest person in the room. But while we're at it, we're going to show off our skills and be one of the strongest ones in the room and best you guys. And I thought that was 
really unexpected for that challenge. I kind of feel in that Camilla was going to be a badass, but again, she's going up against the military house of this world. Um, so I expect it to be more yeah. of like a, either a draw or like a, a closer fight. Um, but I just love that part. And it kind of puts them all uh, on their asses a bit, which I really, I really appreciated happening. Cause I, at this point I was all about sexist and cam as like my, like my, my second or third favorite house. I do think, especially after that too, it, uh, Tamsin does a really good job kind of ending that chapter where Niberius speaks up and challenges the sixth for their keys. And it perfectly emphasizes the point Polymides was making is that now Lieutenant Dias, I mean, uh, no, uh, Deuterus, Captain Deuterus has set up this precedent that now all you have to do is challenge each other. Now it's going to be start, it's going to like, make this snowball effect where everybody's going to start challenging each other for their keys. It doesn't help a teacher like set them up for it too. He's like, well, I guess martial law um, it could be an effect. And I know. And then he just <laughs> walks out. I can't watch this. And he walks out and you're like, wow, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. He pretty much gives them permission to murder and instigator. hundred <laughs> percent. And not everyone is capable of it. And I, and I do love that it has like this, like they fight in the table, which is cool. It's like this like wizard duel kind of moment, except it's all swords. Um, but like you said, the president was sent that this is going to be, we, we can, oh, we don't have to like work together or we don't have to like race each other. We could just kill each other. We're all capable. Bully of each other. Yeah, yeah. Literally we got to be bullies and not everyone's capable of doing that or wanting to do it. But like, it was almost like everyone was waiting to see who would be first to do it. And then the two houses that everyone suspected would be the ones to do it, do it. And now as the readers are kind of like, okay, these are, they're not the bad guys, but this is the opposition. And just like, Palamity said, now they're like weaker, both cavaliers wounded, and now the sixth house comes in. Uh, I'm sorry, not the sixth house, the third house comes in and challenges the sixth for the keys, which is such a sleazy thing for them to do, but we'd expect nothing less coming from Babs and the gang. Um, but we'll close out this chapter because I feel like. Yeah, I think 24. 24 and 25 is where, you know, and then kind of comes, you know comes together here so they're really part one and part two of the same events um so jumping into chapter 24 uh you doing this one too emily yeah all right go for it chapter 24 prospectus astonished to hear niberius challenge the sixth house the group collectively turns to look at ianthe coronabeth and niberius gideon growing tired of the back and forth unsheathes her rapier snaps on her knuckle knives and turns to harrowhark silently willing her to volunteer them to fight on behalf of the freshly injured Camilla. Harrowhark rises to the occasion and icily announces that the Ninth House will stand in for the duel on behalf of the Sixth. Jean-Marie takes the Ninth and Sixth House's side, stating that the Fourth will duel Niberius should Gideon fail. With this turn of events, the Third House Cavalier backs down and the group disperses. The Fourth Sixth and Ninth Houses stay behind as the others leave. Palamides and Harrowhark discuss that each key unlocks a specific room containing the written theorem behind each challenge. Palamides speculates that each smaller theorem, when studied together, will come together to form one larger mega-theorem, which he presumes will reveal the secret to lictoral ascension. The group agrees. They need to find Protezalaus as the first step to figuring out what exactly is going on. 
To increase their chance of success, they decide to split up. The fourth teens and Gideon will go down into the facility to search for Pro in his last known location, while Harrow, Palamides, and Camilla will remain upstairs to guard Dulcinea. Before leaving, Gideon lifts Harrow Hark up in an embrace of appreciation, bewildered by her own actions. In this chapter, we get one of the big quotes from this book, and we'll come back to it. We'll kind of circle back to it, but I want to open up with uh, the quote from Harrow Hark with, Death first of vultures and scavengers. And so... I just thought that was like... Well, I just thought that was such a perfect, like, way to say, like, fuck you without saying fuck you. In a very hard way. And calling them out. Yeah, and calling them out for exactly what they're doing, right? They are taking advantage of the weakness of them and trying to pick off of, like, take the leavings of this fight. And Harrowhark just comes back at it with that and... It's just like, yes. <laughs> it's just two two different versions of the same uh, shitty act, right? The second house is trying to control and contain and use their and blunt force to or a brute force to to control the situation to be the authority figure, and then they lose. And then the um, the third house is subterfuge, and I wouldn't really call it stealth. But it's like they're playing their hand. They're making a move. Now, that being said, it does seem like, at least right off the bat, the third house is a little divided with that. Because Coronabeth did not expect Nibiris to do that. And in fact, she kind of like speaks up against it. Yeah, she, like, no, she no, does. What are you doing? And then Ianthe brings up the fact that they need a facility key and that... This is the, this might be the only way she can be useful, which seems like a really suspect thing for her to say to her twin sister, as they're both the necromancers of their house. Um, but whatever the subtext of that means, it strikes a chord with Corona Beth because she immediately follows up with, "Then let's do this together. I need you. I need you." Echoed her twin rather piteously. So like she actually, even though Corona Beth is. I don't want to say she's not the smartest of the two twins because I feel like they're both very intelligent in their own way. But Yanthe is definitely the um, the scheming and plotting and, and um, the brains of that house, I think. Um, whereas Cronabeth seems to have more of the heart. Um, but for whatever reason, the, the, the subtext in what Yanthe said um, completely... I, I don't want to say cows Cronabeth, but, but um, it definitely resonates with her to the point where she completely backs down yeah but there was something definitely going on between those two because you know there was a lot of emphasis you know in those in like in that in the um paragraph where they talked about how you know they their chairs were together but not that close and like they were angled away from each other so clearly you know they're you know whatever's going on you know one one is not doesn't really seem on board at the time of what the other is doing um, and there seems to be some type of division going on, but I guess in, in the best interest of the two, they decide to, like you said, Nick, um, come together and agree on it. Lisa, what did you think about the the <laughs> vultures and scavengers of this chapter kind of swooping in and trying to take advantage of uh, kind of a, a frustrating and pointless situation? Well, like you said in the previous chapter, like how they said, they're like, you know, you do this, this is going to cause, this is setting the 
the standard that everybody's just going to fight each other to steal the keys and stuff like that. And they even say it here. Um, they're like, once you fate, like, because they then like Gideon says that she's going to stand up and take the place. And they're like, once you face her, you'll face the fourth house. Like they're already like almost already feels like other people are lining up to be like, well, if you're going to fight her and get those keys, I'm going to tell you right now that once you get those keys, I'm going to call to fight you and take those keys. Like that precedent has then been set. Of that's what everybody's going to start doing. And I think that that takes away from what, I mean, I don't like that because it's, I like seeing when, you know, Gideon and Harrow go get the key themselves. They do the tasks and stuff like that. That's how you're supposed to get them. But then it also goes into later on, um, Palamides um, is talking to the ninth and he's like, you know, forgive me for, uh, for the explanation ninth, but I know you've been keeping track of the keys. Because then they say, they're like, wait, we have to go back and go get more keys. And they're like, but there's only a key per um, per task. So once somebody gets it, they already get it. I love that Gideon is like in her mind, like, Haha, I haven't been. Yeah. <laughs> Which I love because Palamides doesn't assume uh, her capabilities. He immediately assumes like Ninth House, we're all here. We're all the best of the best. Like, of course she, of course she's counting the keys. Like. It would be dumb of me not to think she's doing that. Meanwhile, Kitty is just like, no, I wasn't doing that. Yeah. <laughs> just shameless. Uh, also in this chapter, the eighth house like totally just drags Palamides and Camilla through the dirt. Yeah. Like they, just they like kind of... brutally shits on them. <laughs> I was on reread. I did not remember that they said those things to them. Why do you think that is? Too? Do, you, do you have any uh, theories or, or suspicions? I don't. I don't know. He's because he says the ward. This is uh, Silas says the warden of the sixth house is an unfinished inbred who passed an examination. Your companion is a mad dog, and I doubt her legal claim to the title of cavalier primary. I would not even bother to thrash her. Like wow. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. I I know. Like okay, I feel insulted. But just, and ultimately at the end of this chapter, it leaves off with that, again, sinking feeling when they're like, oh, let's all split up. And you're like, no, don't split up. (laughs) (laughs) Because you know what's going to happen. And on my initial read, I did not know, now we're not in this chapter yet, but I did not, I was like, oh, I don't know about this, but on reread, you're like, no, no, I know this. No, <laughs> and, and let's not underplay the fact that Gideon makes a decision without even giving it much thought. Like she, she very much reacts to what's happening, and is finally just like, "I'm done with this guy's shit. I'm done with exactly. all this guy's shit." Yeah. Like, uh, like, and because she's not thinking about theorems, she's not thinking about keys really in the way that they are. Or mega theorems, she's just like, why can't we all work together and get along, and get this and and like get out of this together, like in in one piece, like, or figure out who's murdering people, like why are we having this conversation? Yeah. And when it goes from being a power dynamic struggle to like a sleazy play that the third house is trying to pull, that's like the final straw. And Gideon's like, nope, not having it. Sort out. Put my uh, my knuckle knives on, and then I like that she looks back to Harrowhawk for like permission. And Harrowhawk agrees. And even Harrowhawk is just like, "This is getting out of hand. Yeah. It's time for us to start. Like, if, if this is the moment that 
sides are taken, then I'm going to give Gideon permission to do what she does best, which is, you know, kick ass with a sword. And I, and I love that Babs is kind of like, didn't you know, because right away Gideon is called to fight for the sixth. And Babs is like, I, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like, you know, because he technically would lost. I mean, he won the first duel with Gideon, but as, as a fight, he lost. And seeing how intense Gideon is in that moment and how they're not really dueling in this moment is very much like a, a power play. I think he's confident that Gideon's going to kick his ass, even if she means punching him, you know, unconscious. And I love so much that um, I believe it is. Uh, oh, where is it? Where is it? Um, no, 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 I highlighted it. I, I believe it's Isaac that sticks up for, um, is it Isaac or Jean-Marie? I think it's Jean-Marie that says. It's Jean-Marie. I, I, I love that Jean-Marie sticks up for, and takes a side too. And it's like, and, it, and after, if you beat Gideon, then you're going to fight me next. Like that, that's her way of being like. We're taking their side, and you, you're not just gonna come in here and and fight one person to get the keys. Like we're also against you, and a lot of that has to do with the animosity created between the two houses, I think. But I do like that at this point, the houses are not necessarily picking sides, but like they're not even going, they're not even having that conversation. They're they're, they're like, no, the, the alliances are already made, so let's not do this. And I do like that the fight doesn't even happen. That like it's enough for Babs to sheath his sword and be like, okay, this isn't a fight that I'm gonna win. I did want to talk about the fact that um two things. And then we'll jump into the next one. So we do learn in this moment that and this kind of adds to what I'm gonna what I'm gonna say at the end of the episode. Um Palamides basically says each key unlocks a door to it in the challenges. Once the door is unlocked, like you could technically just do the challenge anyway, even if you weren't the first one to do it, which sort of like emphasizes the point that like each of these trials was like a, whoever gets to it first, they get the trophy for that one, you know, five points to the ninth house moving on. Like, it's not like that. Like they're supposed to communally collect these keys and go through these trials together. And that's something that I wish stuck out to me on my first read. Because to me it's a little obvious. Because I mean the characters are literally saying it. But I completely missed it the first time. I just kind of kept with the contest of champions. This is a competition. And I didn't really care too much about all the other houses. Other than like my favorite two. But on reread and especially on introspection... Even though the names are confusing, and I and I do totally understand when people get caught up on them, and, and like it's hard to keep them all track in your head, which is why like I think the fan art really helps because once you can kind of picture them in your mind, you're like, oh okay, like that's what the second house looks like. Like I think a lot of art draws um, Diaz and Judith is wearing like red, almost like uh, military garb, like fit, military fatigues, um, but like old school looking, almost like. Um, uh, Buckingham Palace guard attire almost. Um, and that was a really big uh, signifier for me while I was reading it. Um, but I want to talk about that or just mention that at least. And then I wanted to also mention the fact that uh, Palamides 
is the one that steps forth and says, I'm putting my trust in you to Harrow. Because Harrow and Pal at this point have been like pretty equal in their own way. Uh, and, we, and we've kind of known that very early on, you know, whether it be Harrow's uh, concern for them or Palamides, you know, dropping his little one line of like, because I'm the best necromancer of my generation, saying it kind of like tongue in cheek, knowing that it would piss off Harrow. But there's like a mutual respect there. And this is the first time that we actually get to see one of them cave and be like, we've gotten to the point now where we're, sides have been taken and I'm trusting you. But I also like specifically that he doesn't just say like, I'm trusting you, Harrow. He says, I don't trust Eante Tridentarius, but I trust the Reverend Daughter, Harrowhark, Nonagesimus. He puts Harrow's name in, in position in a very high place, which to me on both my reads is kind of like, okay, so like the locked tomb is very well respected. The ninth house is seen sort of not above all the other houses, but that does give Harrow this, um, this accolade or this clout that I didn't think she had because her personality certainly doesn't show it, but the name does. And I, I like that uh, Palamides was very outspoken about it, but also that we see Harrow get embarrassed about it, and only Gideon notices because, like, she just knows her so well that she like is processing all these emotions of like sick to her stomach, embarrassed, and then kind of like shy in a way, and because Harrow doesn't know how to, you know, deal with these emotions either, um, and that just that, that cracked me up on my first read. One of my favorite, <clears throat> excuse me, one of my favorite moments uh, from this one was right before she lifts up Harrow, um, Gideon, Gideon finally says something because she has her like whole vow of silence to everybody, but Harrow, mm-hmm. she finally says something and then Isaac says the dreadful teen stared with eyes so wide they could have marched skeletons straight through them and Isaac's, you, you do talk. <laughs> And then Camilla says, you wish she hadn't. Yeah. <laughs> that I love that funny. part. She finally breaks it. And, and like, sex pal. Yeah. Like, I, Palamides is, is looking to Gideon with, like, seriousness. He's like, I, I want you to, like, he, he's looking at her, like, they're having a serious conversation, wanting to hear Gideon's opinion on this. And it's not that Gideon doesn't care. She's just not the pro- she's not the planner. She's not the schemer. She's not here for the science of necromancy. She's just here to do her job. And while she's intelligent in her own way, she, she just in this moment has already zoned out. And like they're talking about alliances and respect and mega theorems, and she's just like, "Did you know that if you move the letters around in your name, it's sex pal?" Like that—that's what she's thinking of. Which kills me. I don't. I'm. I'm trying to look to see if it was in this chapter or the or the next one. But I think one of the uh, one of the teens says to Gideon, "They're like, you don't talk the way I thought you would talk." And I don't. I don't yeah. remember if that was in this chapter or if it's in the next one. I think it's the next one too. I think that um, it was like uh, right after. Mm-hmm. I think what's why it stuck out so much to me is that there's not, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's no sexism in the locked tomb. And that, to me, is super powerful coming from a science fiction, sci-fantasy book um, written by a woman, but in a genre that has lots of issues, at least backlog um, titles. With that uh, top, the topic, 
and I love that in this world that doesn't really exist. Neither does neither is sexuality viewed in the way that it is in other books in this genre. Um, but I like that there's no because you're a man, because you're a woman, X, Y, and Z. That that doesn't exist in this world. Um, and I love that a character like Palamides uh, is sort of like the uh, the propagator of this of this reveal or this you know this it's not really a lesson or a topic but um he sort of showcases this um this attribute to the story and it, like he asked gideon her opinion he's like i realize that we're talking about this like this is what we're going to do but i actually care about what you think and how you feel gideon so like lay it on me and the, yes. the, there's something special that that you don't get in this genre in, in stories like this and i don't know if that's just testament to palamity's character but even babs who's arguably one of the most like insufferable characters never once says like oh i can beat gideon because she's a woman or i'm better because i'm a man or i don't care about her opinion because of x y and z i like that that doesn't exist in tamison's world not that it's not uh not that it didn't exist at some point but i like that in this society that's not something that weighs down um, these characters. I think that's really special. I agree. I I hadn't really thought of it as much, but now that you bring it up, I do appreciate it. Yeah, it's something that it I noticed on re, on the, my first read, but it wasn't like among all the things happening. It, we're talking about mega theorems and constructs. It's not like themes don't usually always pop out at me in my first read, but. I would have appreciated it if I had caught on earlier on my first one, so that's why I'm bringing it up. But we'll end this chapter with a quote from Gideon. Thanks for backing me up, my midnight haggit. As she lifts up Harrow and hugs her for just, like, letting her be herself and letting her, like, finally, like, I'm making a decision. I'm going to look back at you for permission, and then you back me up on it. And that's like the fir- another, not the first time this has happened, but since they decided to work together, it's it's showing that mutual trust, and I just I love that quote in that moment for them. Even though Harrow's like, "Don't make this weird, Nev." Like it's just like the juxtaposition of a skinny, like stick-like Harrow and this jacked, uh, this cavalier of Gideon just it always cracks me up. Yeah, I also feel like that their their the their level of their relationship has incrementally, even though even though it may be minute, has has gone up these little micro steps. And I like that. It's so. a slow burn. <laughs> slow. Yeah. <laughs> this is like just putting a shock line on slow burn. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll jump right into the final chapter of this episode. Chapter 25, Prospectus. Gideon, Isaac, and Jean-Marie reluctantly climb down the hatch into the cold facility. The teens are noticeably on edge upon entering the facility, and Isaac insists on placing wards on every doorway they pass through as they begin their search. Isaac and Jean-Marie converse with Gideon and tell her that they planned to join the military the previous year, but were unable to because Isaac became ill the week prior to the deployment. Gideon realizes that if they had joined the cohort, they would be out fighting on the front lines at the age of 15. The group has no luck in finding Protesilaus, and Gideon decides it's time to give up and leave. Suddenly, Isaac begins to sweat profusively and warns them that something is here in the facility with them. As they begin to hastily make their way back to the access hatch, the lights go out. When the lights come back on, the words, Death to the Fourth House, are written in blood on the opposite wall. 
Suddenly, the largest bone construct Gideon has ever seen materializes in the room with them and begins attacking them. In an act of sheer bravery, Isaac advances forward in an attempt to necromantically deconstruct the creature bit by bit while Gideon and Jean-Marie desperately hack away at its multiple limbs. Isaac creates a necromantic vortex that suspends and consumes many of the construct's teeth-like barbs. But despite his best efforts, the bone construct impales Isaac with over 50 bone spears, killing him instantly. Gideon grabs Jean-Marie and flees the facility as quickly as she can manage, while Jean cries out for Isaac, struggling against Gideon's grip. To Gideon's amazement, she carries the teen up the hatch and locks it behind them. Bloodied, weak, and with an inconsolable grief-stricken Jean-Marie, Gideon reasons out that the sanctuary in the room behind door 203 is the closest and safest place to go. Once locked inside the room, Gideon coaxes Jean-Marie into one of the cots and settles into the chair near the bed. She hopes to give Jean-Marie time to calm down before making the trek back through Canaan House to rejoin Harrow and the others. Gideon unintentionally dozes off in her chair and jolts awake to the horrifying sight of Jean-Marie pierced with huge shafts of bone. On the ceiling above her, the words, Sweet Dreams, written with Jean-Marie's blood. I didn't like this chapter. I don't think anybody likes this chapter. Yeah, like, no, yeah, it was pretty bad. First the fifth house, first the fifth house, and now the fourth. When Isaac died, I had to reread that a few times to make sure that I was reading it right because I was so upset. I was also gonna just say, like, you know, even before you know, you know, they they are obviously murdered by this bone construct. Um, you know, them talking about like how well. I think it was Jean-Marie who was talking about how um, their parents were both killed in the war and the mother, you know, wasn't even supposed to be out there. And it just seemed like they had a lot of tragic things going on. And for them to still want to go into the war, even if they, you know, them being orphans, uh, it was one way that they could actually relate to Gideon. Um, I felt like in that particular moment, I think Gideon probably felt as close as, as she would be prior, you know, prior to their untimely death, uh, very, you know, very close to them. And unfortunately, you know, during this time, she, she really had to, uh, you know, be a protector as best as she could, you know, through, you know, their last moment of their, uh, you know, their lives. Um, yeah, it was just a very sad thing because it just seems like they could have possibly had a really great relationship afterwards after all this happened and for you know for this to happen was definitely upsetting i'm sure to most people who have read the book to see these you know they're they're kids they're kids and you know maybe down the road you know um you know tempson will explain you know why you know you know these things has actually happened um and why I decided to go after the the you know one of the 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 youngest too you know so maybe because they were deemed to be the weakest and not as experienced I don't know but that's what struck me when I first read was like these are the youngest characters they're safe like they they, they are they have plot armor like Tamson's not gonna kill yeah. kids and then as the book progressed you're like damn she just got <laughs> okay you're like I don't I don't think these two are gonna be lictors like you you you're like I I. They're very sweet, and I actually really care about them. I don't see them being able to do some of the things we've seen these other necromancers do to get keys. And 
to be fair, they're very capable. Yes. They're more capable than yes. I thought, and they prove it in this chapter. Um, well, they prove it in their leadership skills and their their ability to function um, and and behave during an active crisis. Um, and doubling back on that too, like you were saying, you know, both of them lost their parents um, to to brutal means and, and, and tragic means. And then we, you know, we learned that they're paired together and, and they try to bond with Gideon about this, you know, and they, we found that they actually have siblings. Both of them have sisters, brothers and sisters. and Gideon, A lot of brothers and sisters. Yeah, a lot of them. And that, I love that Gideon's just like, we don't really do siblings in the ninth house. She's like, I think I'm an orphan. <laughs> Which like cracks me up because Gideon still just has like no real firm understanding of like, her past. She doesn't live like that. She's very much like an in the present person. She's not really living in the past. Really. She's haunted by some things. Um, but she's a very much like an in the moment character, which I really appreciate. But what I was going to say though, is also now that, you know, it, it just really dawned on me that, you know, they actually said something very interesting about when, when, when Gideon was basically like, that's like a lot of, you know, siblings. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, that's kind of like a thing for, you know, for their house because they said something very interesting. They they said something like, essentially, they 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 needed them just in case for like as a backup almost. Yeah, like mm-hmm. as spares or Spa- replacements. Yes, which means that okay, so maybe that's why they got killed off because they have others. I don't know. It's just it's still it's still a shame because I actually like those two. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a true bummer, especially when they just got done saying. Um, that they wanted to join the military yeah. and they couldn't that year because Isaac got sick and they were going to go as a pair, but they're still like wanting to go super young. And you get the sense that they're like, not that they're a military family, but they, they have that vibe of like their big brother or their grandfather was in the military. So they have to be in Cause that's, you know, that's, that's the norm, right? Like we're a military family. And while I think they're, mindset is still very young and a little immature that they they want to be heroes and and you have the sense that Jean-Marie like looks up to Gideon for her muscles and her, her prowess but you know we also learned that the fourth isn't just cannon fodder for the front lines um, but they are the first to hit the ground which I thought was really interesting because I I assumed the second house being the more militaristic um, authoritative house would be that way um but it's cool to see that the houses aren't like so cleanly divided up yeah. that way. Yeah. But did anybody else also um, notice how the you know these pairs who've gotten killed? They've all been like the characters that we all like. And I was gonna, I was gonna say too, <laughs> like, like that's crazy to me. And like this one was, I mean, I I was when Magnus and Abigail died, like that one was like shocking because it was the first one that we've had so it was like it's so sudden too it was like it was like sudden and it was and it was just like oh man you know like i really like them this one was this one hurt more i think because they didn't die together in the moment so we had yeah. to see the reaction of the one like the one pair in that house losing their other one. And it was like that one, like when Abigail and Magnus, they didn't have one to mourn the other. So in this, you know, few paragraphs on that one page before, um, you know, what happens to Jean-Marie, it was just like, 
it was like sad to me. I was just like, and she even says, she's just like, I didn't want him in the beginning. I didn't like him. And then they grew up together and they did everything together. And then you have to like watch, you know, her mourn this. And it was like really sad. I didn't like that. Yeah. And she also mentioned too that uh, he was never one to be just very haphazard about going into things. Like he was very like, it was, you know, he, he did, he, he thought things out before he actually did them. And she questioned why he decided to be so careless with this, you know, you know, this time around. So I thought this, we see that too, with the wards that he's doing like saliva yeah. wards on each of the door thresholds. Um, which again is a, a, a necromantic ability that we don't know much about, but we're seeing it in real time. And he's very careful. I wouldn't say paranoid, but he's very much Cautious, like, yeah. Cautious yep. is the word, yes. And so, which is the complete opposite of what he does at the end when they see the blow on the wall. And you get the sense that this has been adding up. It's not just like a random act. Like Magnus and Abigail were obviously some sort of parental guardian figure for them. You get the sense their houses are probably pretty close. Um, and so that loss, then the the bickering and the arguing between all the houses, the intensity of being picked on by these other houses, um, you know, the, the second um, and the third, and then this going down below and coming to a dead end, essentially getting no answers, um, looking for um, Protisalaus, and then seeing this text very much call them out, knowing that they are kind of like the runts of this litter, like that they are the small fries, literally. Um it, it makes sense that that was like that was the last straw. Like it just tr- triggered Isaac, and you get the sense that he acted bravely, but just like out of fear and anger. But I love that in the face of fear and anger, he chose to act admirably, but also like by fighting back, not by cowering, which is makes it that much more sadder because there's even Gideon pointing out the best, the largest largest construct she'd ever seen on top of the fact that it didn't even fit in the room they were in, was like, it took Gideon some effort to beat the first construct she fought mm-hmm. during a trial. Yeah. This is obviously not just a trial. This is some someone's, either they, they triggered something, or this is just a creature that lives down here that's very dangerous, or someone is utilizing it. But one way or the other, it's not part of the trials. At least that's the vibe I got when I Same read it. Same here. Um, so you know that there's no chance... Isaac alone will fight it, but he does hold out for a minute and he's using this like vortex magic where it's like suspending the bones in the air, which I thought was really cool. Um, but unfortunately it's not enough to, to keep him alive, which shook me the first time. Cause again, I was like teens plot armor. They'll be okay. If anything, they'll be brushed aside. And then when this happened, it, like it, it shook me to my core because I, I started thinking, okay, well, everyone's free game mm-hmm. now. Like, and, I, and I like a lot of these characters. And it was sad, too, because, like, even with that, like, because Jean Marie was his cavalier, so she couldn't protect him in that moment, which is, like, part of the main reason that she's even there. So, like, you're also witnessing her, like, lose a friend, but also in her mindset of a cavalier, she just lost, you know, her necromancer. She did not protect right. him. Right. And it's her job to protect him. Yeah. And then as the Cavalier to see your necromancer die, you see that, like, it just guts her. Like, she's just she's done. Total denial, too. She's like, let me go back. Let me go back to save him. Like, he's he's still okay. And then uh, I believe she actually says, like, 
he could still be alive and Gideon having seen it right in front of her was like he's seriously not um and then John Marie's direct quote after that is screaming that she wants to die and you're like oh. well because I think at that point like you just said the relationship between you know um the necromancer and the um uh oh gosh I just forgot what's, what's the, uh, what what is she to him um the cavalier ca- yeah 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 cavalier. so the relationship between the, the cavalier and the necromancer she probably feels like a failure like I should have been there to protect him and I couldn't Mm-hmm. You know, and Which is the, it's the extra twist exactly, yeah. So it's like she, now she she wants to to go back, and you know maybe there's just an inkling that that she could save him, and unfortunately, you know that you know that's not the case. It does kind of feel like a trap too. Um, that was something that I didn't notice my first time reading it. I was just kind of like, right, looking for bones, Scooby Doo, doing some mystery searching, mm-hmm. and then I was like, oh, and there's a construct. And on this to read through, I'm like, oh, they went down the hatch. To this place, I'm like, what? Another hatch. Why did they? Another hatch. The, like, the, Gideon should be pretty capable of taking care of anybody in this instance, but I think they you almost feel like they got sent away to what everyone thought would be a safe place, but is pro- pro- arguably one of the more dangerous places in the Canaan mm-hmm. House. Um, but before we jump into the ending here, I did want to note um, that I think. The thing that we've all missed in the locked tomb community has something to do with the sanitarer, sanitizer, sanitizer, <laughs> sanitizer room. When I believe it's Isaac who says there's a lot of bone matter in this area. There's a, there's a lot of corpses and dead energy is here. Mm. And then, yeah, I. I wrote that down too because he said bodies were brought in a long time ago. Yes. And so you're like, the, and it says the first feels like a graveyard all over. And you're kind of like, what is. Hmm, yeah. I flagged but that too. But he specifically too. says this, he says basically Cannon House feels like a graveyard all over, but this area feels worse. Yes. Yes. Which I was like, how can it be worse than anything they've seen? I so, know. Like even. The, even the lobby of Canon House is like, this place is spooky. I kind of like it, but it's still pretty spooky. So Gideon takes Jean-Marie up the hatch, locks it behind her, and panics at first because she's trying to figure out what to do, but everything feels just just too far away to risk um, traveling to because she doesn't know they're being followed, doesn't know if there's any more traps. So she decides to take her to the room um, of the long dead cavern necromancer that we had learned about earlier in the story. Um, Cause that seems like a pretty enclosed space. She has the only key for it. And as far as I'm concerned, reading it, I'm like, yes, take, take mm-hmm. her there. That's like my parental uh, instincts, my feral instincts to protect the you know, younger person are kicking on. I'm like, yes, take her to the room and lock the door. And she does all the things. Gideon like his best mom in this moment. <laughs> like she's just taking care of business, doing the right thing. Locks her up, you know. Jean Marie's kind of like in denial at this point, but kind of like coming down a little bit. Um, and I do like the descriptions of the space again. We've already been here before, but I like that Tamsin brings us back now and we're seeing this room in a completely different way. It's not a sanctuary, it was a mystery box, a dead room that these two people we care about explored, and now it's like a safe house, a safe room. And that's pretty cool to me. I didn't expect that. 
Um, I, didn't, I didn't expect this room to ever come up again, and I like that it's being utilized in this way. Um, and they're just like the little ways that Tamsin describes it, like um, uh, she takes tiny steps of water that came out of the tap in the laboratory, which is a, a room adjacent to this larger room. The pipes rattled in shock that they were being used in a little tin mug that probably not had in a little Jesus. The pipes rattled in the shock that they were being used in a little tin mug that had probably not had anybody's lips near it since the ninth house was young. <laughs> little details like that I love because they're both like world building, but also like just the way she described things, like the pipes themselves were shocked they're being used. Um, I just love the atmosphere that she creates in these spaces, even though we've already been to them normally. In other books, I've seen similar setups happen. They would walk into the room and they wouldn't be described at all. We just, oh, it's the room five. Like we've, we've been there before. Um, I love that there's like a sense of atmosphere and comfort to this space, um, which is exactly what we want to feel going into it. Yeah, that it. De she definitely describes that as kind of like locked, hidden away. This whole time, the door to in to enter there is hidden behind the tapestry. And Gideon really mm -hmm. feels like she's the only one who knows where this room is. And she's the only one who has a key. And so she feels safe there. And Muir kind of leads you to believe like, yes, this is a safe place to be. So the shock of her waking up to find Jean-Marie murdered. Like with basically, I mean, they don't even describe. No, she doesn't hear anyone come in. She doesn't hear anything move about like she just wakes up to find jean marie dead you know and i think it's chapter 20 or 21 where gideon takes note that the door is still hidden too granted yes she does all she did was pull a sheet over a curtain essentially but there's still that detail there that like in her mind it's still hidden she has the only key even if someone were to move that curtain they can't get into it allegedly so that part Truly bummed me out because I, in this moment, getting to the end of the chapter, getting to that page break, when she sat and when Jean-Marie fell asleep and kind of like cried herself to sleep, essentially, I had felt some tension release. I'm like, they're safe. They're safe in this box. I think the next chapter, they'll hear a knock at the door. It'll be Harrow or somebody and, and they will go from there. At least Jean-Marie is alive. I'm sad that one of them is gone but maybe she'll be kept safe now. You did not expect for her getting to pass out and then to wake up to have Jean-Marie essentially crucified on the bed and the words sweet dreams written in her blood be above her head. And, and the only comfort I take out of this is that she died in her sleep and, and it appears to be mostly painless, happened pretty instantaneously. And Gideon's pretty sure she hasn't been sleeping for long. So we get the sense that it happened pretty quick. But absolutely gutted by this scene. I know when my wife Annie read it, she was also gutted because she loved Magnus and Abigail. And like Isaac and Jean-Marie were her second favorite house. So it was like, well, other than the ninth. It was just back-to-back -back trauma for her when she was reading it. And she's like, what the fuck? Why are you making me read this book? And I was like, trust me. It's like, you know, what's the quote from Harry Potter that Ron says in the movie? He's like, you're going to be sad but you're gonna be happy about it or something like that 
God, I can't remember the quote. I'm, I'm, Lisa's usually really good with movie quotes. She's letting me down here. I don't remember that being from Harry Potter. I know the quote where it's like, you're going to you're gonna suffer, but you're going to like it. That's Harry Potter where he's going through the tea leaves. He's like, and that's what it is, suffer. He's like, you're going to suffer, but you're going to be happy about it. Ron saying it to Harry the tea leaves in the third one. I love that quote because it was relevant to a lot of Locked Tomb stuff where it's like, you're going to suffer, but you're going to be happy about it. Obviously, not right now in this moment because two young people are dead. People that we cared about. People that I don't think anybody, at least I wasn't very suspicious of up until this point. I think Palamides at one point says, like, I'm starting to think those teens are capable of more than they seem. But I like that that now we realize is because they are capable. They are young, but they're in their own way strong. Um, just not strong enough. So in closure of chapter 25, this is the last chapter of Act 3. Moving into Act 4, or Gideon the Ninth, we are winding down here, guys, to the end of the book. Um, I believe there's a, it's five acts, um, and I do believe Act 4, from what I remember, goes by pretty quickly. So I'm excited to step into Act 4 with you guys, and before we close out the episode, just want to take a brief check-in and see how you guys are feeling. A lot of heavy stuff happening in these past couple chapters, and uh, especially for our new readers, I kind of wanted to just kind of prod you and do a little check-in. And see how you guys are feeling about the book, and what you're, if you have any theories or thoughts, questions or concerns. Yeah, I just think that um, you know, this being a, a a book of fantasy and what have you, you know, I I think that you know, there's a possibility that some of these characters could come back. That's just my just this my theory. I don't know. It is a book about necromancy, but, and necromancy is about yep. reanimating dead. That is a thought that I yep. had in my mind from the first page. Anything is possible. How about you, Lisa? I mean, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying it very much. This last chapter made me really sad, so I'm angry at it at the current moment. But no, I mm-hmm. I, I like it. I um I have a lot of questions, but too many questions to even dive into. Um, I'm intrigued to see where the next act does go, though, because we know that they split up, and we ended with just one half of the team that split up so i'm you know like where's harrow at this point you know like what oh, don't and don't forget gideon's team is all dead except for her yes in exactly, enclosed exactly. room yeah. with a dead body yeah so yeah. when she gets back to the rest of the team she has to be like yeah i lost two-thirds of mine what happened what about you like what's even going on with harrow and them mm. so i'm excited to see what's gonna come next just being in Gideon's shoes, being like, oh, Isaac died downstairs. We ran away, went to a locked room, woke up after a nap. Sean Murray's dead. Like, having to explain that to her her companions right at the bat for me, at the end of that act, was like, this is going to be rough. I'm really concerned for her because she's not good at words, but also, like, she cared about these people too. And it's not going to, and we already had this, like, tension growing among all the houses this yes. is not going to look good but yeah because i was thinking she would at least have an alibi with uh jean marie and then jean marie gets killed i'm like damn now she, she's gonna go back and think he'd be like you you killed both of them you know like oh, I, I feel like it's there's crazy. like there's gonna be that issue where they're all gonna now turn to the ninth and think that there's an issue with them but then it would also i wonder how i mean how Harrow's going to look at it because, I mean, if if Gideon is supposed to be there to protect Harrow, I mean, she's not there to protect 
the other two, but she couldn't protect either of them. So I wonder if that's going to make Harrow question any type of of Gideon's abilities, if that will even be brought up. I didn't even think of that. That's a good, that's a good point. On, on top of the fact that you, Hera also knows Gideon really well. So I think, at least what I can suspect at the end of this act, I wouldn't even think Hera would be suspicious of Gideon in this moment. But it definitely, I didn't even think of that, like you said, Lisa, that it definitely would. I mean, I'm sure that Hera would look at it in the sense that, like, I know that Harrow is probably not going to sit here and think that Gideon is responsible for it. And at the end of the day, Gideon, Gideon's job is to stay alive for Harrow. So, yes, Gideon would not necessarily, like, push the other two off the cliff, but she would save herself before she'd save the other two because she needs to be there for Harrow. Um, so there is that thought process, but it's also... I thought of that. I was just like, hmm. I was like, well, she can't protect the two teens. I wonder if that will... St- affect harrow in any way emily having to relieve relive the trauma of these chapters how did you feel closing out act three um and also because i i didn't get to buddy read it as closely with you the first time you know what were your feelings with the passing of these two characters um i know i talked about being shocked like when isaac passed i was like okay well i'm really safe and then like that, that double hitter for me like wrecked me. I was one hundred percent caught off guard. <laughs> like I said, reading it this time, I was a little more. Um, I had a little more trepidation about them splitting up, whereas the first time I was just kind of going along with the story. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this chapter, what really hit me, moving in, like looking forward to our next episode is how Gideon's going to handle this because she was essentially with them, you know, as part of their team, like Lisa was saying, to protect them. And they both died on her watch. And we've seen previously in all of the buildup of Gideon's character that she is a very caring, empathetic person. And so how is she going to handle this trauma of being the one who was with them when they both were murdered, basically, and Jean-Marie, like, right in front of her, like, when she was under her watch, Mm -hmm. but she fell asleep. Like, that's a, that's just, like, a gut-sinking, like, just heart-wrenching feeling. So that's what I'm excited, I guess. It's definitely a loss or a Gideon, for sure. Right, yeah, something I'm looking forward to discussing in the next episode it's it's a boiling point too because we, we we get the sense that she's itching for a fight she's been itching for a fight the moment the shuttle landed but she was really looking forward to fighting babs in that duel especially with Hera hark's blessing and then getting down to the basement and kind of going back to the exploring the investigating not her jam but you know here to help um you know your friendly neighborhood griddle and then this contract appears and she knows right away like we we can't fight this thing we get we, and she even tells them like run like don't fight it run um i definitely see it. yep following the house uh the uh, 10th house's rules run <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for it to come up run <laughs> i was waiting for yeah. junior be like yeah 10th house would have easily been able to outrun this construct <laughs> yeah absolutely so it, it did bum me out thinking of it that way because gideon definitely uh is going to have that the, the boiling point now where these two houses where these four people she actually was growing 
to like a lot and care about and they were actually kind to her are gone now and there's really no one left that she that is kind to her camilla and palamides and dulcinea are like the three closest things she has to quote friends left in the Can- in canaan house and then there's harrow so they're kind of cutting it down now to the these key players and going into the second time trying to think about how Gideon's feeling, like her psyche. I'm like, oh man, it really is going to be weighing on her. She's ready to explode at this point. I almost would be worried to be the person that would accuse her of hurting the teens. But that's going to be it for this one, guys. We're going to close out the next episode of the Unlocked Tomb podcast. will be another interlude from Emily and I. Looking forward to talking about the sixth house. Emily, I know you're excited about talking (laughs) about this house. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> you've been waiting for this since like the moment i asked you i think we should do a lock tune podcast <laughs> i'm hoping that when we do that episode you're in your full camilla hecht cosplay that's all i'm saying i i need to cut the hair though my hair is a little too long right now just chop it um very much looking forward to that episode and yeah excited to jump into act three with you guys and see where this uh, see how you guys feel moving forward now that pieces have been knocked off the board and the story starting to, to kind of boil down to be more linear. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for hanging out with me, guys. As always, thank you to the Wicked Good Looks community for making cool content like this possible. And let us sit here talking about bones and love the saliva wars. But yeah, I just love this world and looking forward to exploring it with you guys. But thanks so much for tuning in, guys, and we'll see you in the next one. Stay wicked.